I don't read my Bible much anymore, if at all, a friend lamented. I don't even know if I believe what it says. It was a sort of confession and a question followed as my friend continued, why do I, at my age, with all I've experienced, why do I still have all these doubts? So it's questions like this that got me thinking about uh, doing a worship series on the Bible, um, even though I understand that's been done here before. So maybe this is old hat to some, but my hope is also that we will rethink how we understand the Bible and that we will ponder it anew. Some of us don't know our Bible well enough. Someone told me recently that in their denomination, the average person doesn't know that uh, David, the shepherd boy, killed a lion. The shepherd boy who killed a lion is the same person as King David, or the same person we refer to when at Christmas we read, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. They don't know the connections and relationships in the Hebrew Bible, she claimed. More surprising to me when I was in seminary was that one of the students in the Old Testament had not heard of the David and Goliath story, and sad to say many of the other stories that are taught to our children. Many of us have known these stories from the time when we were very young. We learned them in Sunday school. Stories of a faithful Abraham who was obedient to God and traveled to another land of Jacob, who dreamed of angels on a ladder and became known as Israel, the father of the Israelite people, and the story of David, who cheered up King Saul by playing his harp. These stories are neat and clean. I will insert here that we learned fewer stories of women, of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and her strong faith as she prayed for a son whom she could dedicate to God's work of Ruth who was dedicated to her mother-in-law and cared for her with great love, of Queen Esther who saved her people with unbelievable courage, and Priscilla thought to have been the first example of a female preacher or teacher in early church history. Also as a child, we weren't told all the messy parts. We didn't learn so much about Abraham and Sarah's lapse in faith when they determined Sarah was not going to bear a child that God had promised, and decided that if Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, it was best to send Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, in, into him to lay with him, become pregnant, and bear Abraham's son. We didn't learn about the subsequent and fairly predictable jealousy of Sarah when they sent, when she, when she sent uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael into the desert to die. We glossed over the story of Jacob, the conniving cheat who tricked his blind father and stole his brother's birthright. And I don't recall anything being said about Rahab, the innkeeper slash brothel owner who becomes the great grandmother of David and therefore forebear of Jesus, somewhere near the base of Jesus' family tree. It's no wonder then that as adults, even as early as in our teen years, Disillusionment begins to set in when we discover God, who in a terrible act washes away all of human life and other life, except for the two of everything that reached the safety of the ark. Or how God permitted the kidnapping of women and girls as spoils of war. 
or how God appointed an angel of death to kill every firstborn boy in Egypt? We have no answers for these questions, except possibly to let God off the hook by suggesting that this really wasn't God's plan, really wasn't God acting, but that it was interpreted this way by fallible humans. In the end, however, I think we need to let God be God, aware that God is beyond comprehension, and just hold some of those questions loosely. I don't know how we teach Bible stories to children and determine at what age to reveal more of the story. Yet, at some point, like CBC's Paul Harvey, at some point we need to tell the rest of the story. And in that story to say that Abraham, the exemplar of faith, also doubted. That Jacob, the father of the Israelite people, was a cheat. That Rahab was a prostitute. But God loved them all with all their faults. God used them with all their weaknesses. This, I believe with all my heart, is a critical message of God's grace to them and to us all. God loves us with all our faults. God uses us with all our weaknesses. Megan Larissa Good reminds us that the Bible's story isn't neat because this kind of pursuit never is. It's messy and confusing and frequently uncomfortable. But it's precisely the blood and sweat and tears and questions that certify the Bible's trustworthiness. This is the story of real life, raw and complicated and sacred. She says that by immersing ourselves in scripture's messy stories and by daring to call them God-breathed and holy, we are reminded that if God can be here, God can be anywhere, even with broken people like us, even in our cracked and jagged world, even in our up and down, back and forth, missing and reaching stories. As you know, the Bible is filled with stories, and you may have noted I barely got past the Old Testament in the stories I related. Do not doubt that this sermon would have been twice as long had I included stories from the New Testament. Some, much has been said about the value of story. Daniel Taylor in his book, Tell Me a Story, wrote, whenever humans try to make sense of their experience, they create a story. And we use those stories to answer all the big questions of life. This past Wednesday evening, a small group of us met to discuss this morning's theme. And I have to say, I was blown away by the stories and insights that came out of that evening discussion. I asked about family stories, for we all have family stories, often many of them, and they get told over and over, providing us with insight into who we are. They are our stories. One person in the group told of a mother who had come to Canada after World War II, and this family lived with much gratitude for being in this country. The mother had no family here, and as a result, family established in this country grew to be to have an even greater value. My story involved my father finding me in the farmyard underneath a sow with little piglets. I imagine I'd been chasing her until she'd had enough which likely wouldn't have taken very long. You've heard of messing with a mama bear? Well, you don't mess with a mama sow either. So there I was, lying on the ground, with a sow standing over me, face to face, and me, undaunted, 
continuing to hit her, little, her snout with my little stick. How my dad got me out of that situation is not part of my memory. To be sure, it would have been a tricky situation, but I believe that Sal decided I wasn't worth the trouble, and so she stepped over me and ambled off. For one thing, this story reminds me that I was once fearless, and I wish I could be that again, although granted, a little caution is also valuable. This story also reminds me that things could have gone south very quickly and that I'm grateful to be alive and with you here. A third story from Wednesday night's group took place during World War II when about a half dozen RCMP rode onto the yard of a Mennonite farm family. The family was ordered not to move while the RCMP searched the entire house, although no one knew what they were looking for. The interesting piece of this story was that relations between Mennonites and their Catholic neighbors were tense at that time, and the Mennonites figured that it had to have been the Catholics who had reported them. And whether the allegation was true or false didn't matter. The Mennonites believed it. To them, it was true. Certainly, their perception of the event would have colored relationships with their neighbors for many years to come. I said that we all have family stories, and I believed that to be true, until I heard the story of another in the group who told of sitting beside a man at a soup kitchen where this person was volunteering. This man had told, this, had told his life story and then added that he had been adopted and therefore had no family stories. His family stories were lost in a black void. Now he had no way to make sense of his life experience, no way to answer all the big questions about who he was, where he had come from, and why he had been given up for adoption. And this was an irretrievable loss for him. This man's story reminds me to be grateful for the family stories I had, all of them, the funny stories, the pleasant stories, and the unpleasant stories. Rachel Held Evans states, it's important to identify and unpack these stories, the good and the bad, the true and the half-true, for they explain so much of what we believe and how we behave. The stories in the Bible, some of them factual, some of them true, are part of our story as well. They teach us who we are and that we have a place where we belong. They determine our worth and the values by which we live. Rachel Held Evans tells us that the origin stories of scripture remind us that we belong to a very large and very old family that has been walking with God from the beginning. Even when we falter and fall, God is in it for the long haul. We will not be abandoned. We need to know these stories. We need to enter into them because they are our own and because they can speak to us. God's word is a light to, uh, to our feet, a lamp shedding sufficient light for each step on the journey. Although we may think it irrelevant, with nothing new to say, God's word is a light. It directs us in times of trouble and difficulty. It comforts us in our doubts and fears and distresses and when the way seems dark. It sheds light not only on where we have been, but particularly on where we are and where we are to go. In her book, The Bible Unwrapped, Megan Larissa Good claims that all knowledge begins with, some, with a small leap of faith. Our journey with the Bible begins with willingness to enter a simple what if 
What if God had something to say? What if humans were capable of hearing? More than that, what if closer, God was closer than our being? What if God wore feet and walked our streets, caked in the dust of our neighborhoods?" Unquote. Last summer, a number of us worshiped at the Forest Reform with our theme being Beyond Sunday, Experiencing God Through Photography. There we practiced a contemplative approach to photography. What many of us found was if you stay in one spot, consciously mindful of what is around you, it can be amazing what you see. Here are a couple of photos from that experience, and with permission, I'll show you Nathan captured capture this bee on a flower. And the second, a wee plant emerging from the soil, perhaps even an evergreen, who knows. When we slow down long enough to pay attention, we discover new sights. And as Marnie's read in her story, the more things we look for, the more things we find. I think the same is true with scripture. Many times I've read through the Bible reading of the day, whatever it might be, and say, okay, that's nice. Or sometimes, my, that's disturbing. Or I don't connect with that. I close the book and go on my way. But there are also times when I read the passage a second time, sometimes out loud, and discover that what I had glossed over earlier suddenly reflects and impacts my life directly. When I stop for a closer look, whereas these verses had little significance for me on first reading, the light goes on and I have new insight to their meaning. Suddenly, they apply to me. I think this is what Megan Good referred to when she said, if we sit with our stories long enough, engage with them curiously enough, we might find that our senses begin to pick up sights and sounds and scents we never perceived before. We might even catch ourselves walking around and glancing over our shoulder, wondering what such a God on the loose could be up to now. How do we sit with scripture? By reading once and then rereading it out loud. By practicing Lectio Divina, where you pay attention with each reading of a passage to what stands out for you and why. By practicing imaginative prayer in which you place yourself somewhere in the story or drawing a cartoon, perhaps to highlight the action or interactions, or even by rewriting the scripture passage. I don't know whether any of you have ever rewritten a passage. I won't ask for a show of hands as to who has done that, but I found it to be an interesting experience. Let me read the original Psalm 3 to you, and uh, I'll read from the Inclusive Bible. O oh God, so many people have turned against me, so many are in open rebellion, more and more are telling me no deliverance is coming to you from your God. But you, Yahweh, are my protection, my glory, the one who helps me hold up my head. I cry aloud to you, Yahweh, and you answer me from the mountain of your holiness. Now I can lie down and sleep and then awake again, for you have hold of me. No fear now of those tens of thousands who stand against me wherever I turn. Arise, Yahweh, save me, my God. You struck all my enemies with a blow to the jaw and broke the teeth of the violent. From you, Yahweh, deliverance to your people, blessing. 
If you'll humor me, I will share with you my reinterpretation of these words, what they meant to me after first recoiling at the violent images portrayed in the original. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Tens of thousands, voices rising up saying, you are beyond help, God will not deliver you. Many voices, name calling, shouting out adjectives about me that are far from complimentary. Voices saying, you are a mess. God does not care about you. God will not help you. These are the voices that rise up against me. To the Lord I cry aloud, and the reassuring response resounds from the expanse of the universe to the spark that is within. You are a soft comforter surrounding me, O Lord a divine presence wrapping me in pure love, whispering tenderly, you matter, you are loved. You are a gentle presence in a harsh world. These are the words that come to me from the creator of all that is. I will lie down and sleep, and in the morning arise, new in the assurance that divine presence upholds me, sustains me, and greets me with tenderness. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on either side. I will pass through them in safety, sheltered and protected from harm. For I am shielded by God Almighty, who has wired their jaws and silenced their voices. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for you, O Lord, have delivered me. May your blessing be upon me and on all who would walk in your way. So that was my paraphrase of Psalm 3. And what I'm learning, doing is learning from the text, sticking with it enough to glean truths for myself, to guide my way on life's path. I'm not alone in this. In Jewish traditions, people have long explored and expanded on scripture, using their imaginations to interpret these ancient writings. Attached to the biblical text and known as Midrash, these instructive and at times playful interpretations animate the biblical stories and uh, its characters in new ways. The example of Midrashic interpretation allows us to recover some of the curiosity and wonder of our childhood. It allows us to play a little with the text, to give space for our doubts and permission for our questions. I want to say something about God's role in this. The title of this sermon is, after all, No Helicopter God. Oh wait, no helicopter God, there we go. In his newest book, How the Bible Actually Works, author Peter Entz tells the story of attending junior high school orientation for his youngest child. There this room full of what he describes as success-oriented parents were told that they would help their children best if they resist the urge to become helicopter parents. A helicopter parent, as you may well know, is a parent who is too involved in a child's life, hovering overhead, overseeing every aspect of their child's life constantly, swooping at, in at any sign of challenge or discomfort and solving the child's problems. Apparently, we baby boomers did a good job of that. They hover over and then rescue their children whenever trouble arises, authors Jeffrey Freed and Lori Parsons write. They're forever running lunches, permission slips, band instruments, and homework assignments to school. 
hmm, I hate to admit it, but guilty as charged. I also read, these parents are obsessed with a desire to create a perfect world for their kids, one in which they never have to face struggle, inconvenience, discomfort, or disappointment. So isn't that a good thing? The problem is, children start to resent such a parent because helicopter parenting can stifle a child. It stifles it or discourages a child's independence and negatively affects the ability to develop confidence and competence to solve their own problems. Did you ever step in and hear your child say, Mom or Dad? Especially as children enter their tween and teen years, they start craving independence and privacy. What they need is a sense of confidence that develops from the inside out. They need to learn responsibility, good judgment, situational awareness, and confidence. Can you imagine, as an adult, not being able to exercise these abilities, those rights? Just as God designed humans to exercise free will and the freedom to choose to follow God's way or not, Pete Hans maintains that our holy scriptures are written in such a way that we are required to figure things out on our own. He says, and I quote, if God were a helicopter parent, our sacred book would be full of clear, concise, unambiguous information to take in. In other words, it wouldn't look anything like it does. But if the Bible's main purpose is to inform us, to grow us to maturity, to teach us the sacred responsibility of communing with the spirit by walking in the path of wisdom, it would leave plenty of room for pondering, debating, thinking, and the freedom to fail. And that is what it does. He goes on to say, God is a wise parent, prodding us towards spiritual maturity in a secure atmosphere of unconditional love and acceptance, so we can learn to navigate life well. That is what good parents do. We talked about this in our Wednesday night group as well. While some people claim to truly want black and white answers to their spiritual questions, and some even change churches because that's what they are looking for, many of us really do not. One person in the group said that while in Bible school, they and the other students grew totally frustrated with black and white answers and balked against them. Thinking things through for oneself rather than just believing what we're told causes a person to integrate learning more into who you are. Being able to see the gray, this person said, is a mark of spiritual maturity. Another person added that reading other books helps us to understand the Bible, sometimes just in providing the context in which it was written. I find that reading books by a variety of authors is also helpful, as is talking with a variety of people about their insights and understandings, from like-minded people to those of other faith backgrounds to those who claim to have no faith. In the end, though, we are left to wrestle with the stories, the teachings, and with God and we are intentionally left to wrestle on our own. As Rachel Held Evans said, spiritual maturation requires untangling these stories, sorting fact from fiction, or more precisely, truth from untruth, and embracing those stories that move us toward wholeness while rejecting or reinterpreting those that do harm. Like is often said, take what serves you and leave the rest. 
I suggest you do not discard lightly. I have quoted Pierre Teilhard de Jardin before, and I'm sure I will again. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience, he said. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. We are all created by God to be human, to have a human experience. We are not angels. We are not God. We are fallible human beings, and we are made that way. That was God's intent. And we are meant to follow our own path through life in a secure atmosphere of unconditional love and acceptance. Just like doing exercises to improve balance, some days we feel successful, some days it's harder. But if we keep practicing, we develop muscles to help us gain strength and to feel better grounded. In the process, we can learn the same patience, empathy, and compassion for ourselves and for others that God has for us while as, as we strive for wholeness. God has given us a general idea of how to live, knowing we live a life of true faith only when we figure out for ourselves how to respond to any given experience at any given time. It turns out we have more responsibility than we realized for our own journey. As adults, we need to keep engaging the text, whether that be in a quiet place on our own, in an adult Sunday school class, or through prayer, or just maybe all of the above. I will close with the words from Peter Ansa's latest book, which I find to be comforting, encouraging, and very good news. He says, the Bible holds out for us an invitation to accept this timeless and sacred responsibility of working out for ourselves what faith in God looks like here and now, of owning the process with no accompanying checklist of one-size-fits-all solutions no safety net of prescripted responses, and no fear that God will bring down the hammer on us for accepting the challenge of faith. My prayer is that we will be able to see ourselves as participants in God's story, and that we will, each of us, faithfully continue to wrestle with God's word and its meaning for our lives. May it be so.